Uh, I'll just read, I'm going to read three passages. Here we go. Exodus 20, first, uh, verse 13. You shall not murder. Or actually, the Hebrew word can actually mean kill unlawfully, which is interesting. And then here's what Jesus says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then here's what John says, thinking about again this scene. It says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let me pray for us, and let's kind of dive into what I'll talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you are a God that uh, reveals yourself to us. You love us, and therefore you draw near. And you tell us what you love. You tell us who you are. You tell us that which is near to you, your heart. And you tell us that which causes you pain and causes you grief and causes you righteous anger. And Lord, I pray as we think about the Sixth Commandment and we think about this idea of, of the hate and anger that leads to a, a, a violent, vicious act like murder, that you would be gracious to uh, not just reveal yourself to us in and through Christ, but to draw near and, and meet us where we are, not where we should be, and speak to us the word that we need to hear from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're thinking about this, the Sixth Commandment, and we're thinking about the, what are one kind of, there are a lot of places we could go with it. But I want to kind of narrow in and think about this idea that Jesus and John draw out, which that behind, when you think about what's at the root of something like murder, that Jesus sort of, he actually dials it back like he does with most sin and says, what's the heart of it? What's the root of it? And Jesus says the root of it is actually a hate and an anger that persists, a bitterness and envy that persists in the human heart that might, on the one hand, it's like a seed, it might look small in the human heart and maybe it's just coming out in like road rage or maybe it's just coming out in like you just talking all kinds of crap about your friends or maybe it is coming out in some sort of, you're exploding on people. That's what actually, when it grows and it grows, you know, like when a seed grows to like an oak tree, that, then it becomes murder. And so we're thinking about, we're narrowing and thinking about anger and that's what we all want to talk about tonight. And here's how I kind of want to start. There was a, a fascinating, uh, there was a, a woman who used to have a column in then like every local newspaper. Her name was Ann Landers. And it was the kind of column where people would write in and have a question for her. And like most of these columns, like a Dear Abby kind of a thing, they would write Ann Landers and just a lot of parents would write and ask about like parenting advice. And there was this one time where this parent wrote in and said, you know, my three-year-old is having all kinds of temper tantrums. What do I do? Now, the column she wrote back wasn't actually that interesting. She kind of said some of the normal things you might say, count to ten, let him get it out of his system. But what was fascinating was there was a, a woman that read this column that Ann Landers wrote and responded herself. And here's what she wrote. It's pretty shocking. She said this. She said, Dear Ann, I was shocked at your advice to the mother whose three-year-old had temper tantrums. You suggested that the child be taught to kick furniture and get the anger out of his system. And here's what she said. She said, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. Mother called it letting out steam. Well, he's 32 years old now and still kicking the furniture. What's left of it, that is. He's also kicking his wife, the cat, the kids, and anything else that gets in its way. Gets in his way. Last October, he threw the TV set out of the window when his favorite team failed to score and lost the game. The window was closed at the time. 
And what this woman gets is that anger isn't something that just goes away. Anger isn't something that just sort of melts. Anger is something that is with us. And, and if we're not careful with it, it actually grows. Whether it's explosive anger. So some of you wrestle with like explosive anger where you really do, you have a temper and you lose that temper on your friends or you lose that temper on your parents. And maybe sometimes it even comes out physically. Maybe sometimes it just comes out in words. But there's all such a thing as we could call it implosive anger. You know, what, what, what someone calls like crockpot anger, if you ever cook with a crockpot. Like that whole idea of it simmering beneath the surface. It's always kind of there. And maybe that means you're depressed, but you don't realize that you're depressed because you really are angry at heart. You're angry at the way life has gone. You're angry at the way a relationship has gone. Or it can come out in bitterness. Where there's just sort of beneath the surface all the time, there's just this bitterness. And if you're not careful on either side, anger is going to ruin your life. When you think about anger, it's fascinating to think about the first place anger ever sort of showed up in the human story. And that's why I actually read the John passage. Because the first place that anger shows up in a powerful way is with Cain and Abel. Here's here's Cain and Abel. They're the, the sons of Adam and Eve. They are walking with God, presumably. And then we see the story of Cain. And all we really know is that somewhere Cain gets pissed at God. And it's it's fascinating to look at the story because Cain starts with getting pissed with God and then that that, that anger toward God actually was what leads him to get so envious of his brother that he actually kills him in this really violent way. And we look at this story and we sort of say, there's something important for us there. That that anger at, at the heart has to do with God and his authority and what he's doing in our lives and how we're responding to him. You have to, have to, have to. We're going to talk more about this. But if you are a person that's dealing with deep with anger, it's coming out, you have to ask the question, how is this connected to the way I'm related to God? And this is sort of the first place in, in the human story where anger shows up. And we sort of see how dangerous it is, how powerful it is. But it's interesting to kind of look at that and sort of say, well, you know, since then, it's only gotten worse for us. You know, there was a study that kind of came out just a year ago where it said 63% of adolescents, 63% of teens... 63% they would say that they deal with what they would call lifelong, explosive, violent anger. Where they feel the need and have felt the need for a long time to either get their anger out on something, to kick something, to destroy something, or to hurt themselves. To cut, to, to hurt their bodies. Suicide obviously is a huge deal. 63%. Another way to think about where anger sort of shows itself. You, know, you really don't need to go much further than just the comment section and pretty much any website. Go to kind of any blog or any YouTube video and just start reading the comments. You know, when you do that, it's one of the most depressing, sort of just vicious. It's just like human beings resort to like animals and just kill each other in comment sections. Comment sections are on the internet feel like the, the Mordor of the internet. It's a place where you're like, it's deep darkness and like people go to die. And it's just a place that's really, really depressing and sad to read. But, but you can see that, I mean, talk about places. The internet's one of those weird places where anger comes out all over the place. Which is why some of you actually, you do the angry event on Facebook. Where you're like, some others just disconnect where you're like, I'm friends with people on Facebook, but I don't want to say it to them, so I'm going to write it on Facebook. But then you miss the step that they're going to read that Facebook, and it's going to be a little bit awkward. I love to think that I, I wish there was a rule... That when you wrote something really angry on Facebook, like it had to go in your tombstone, just to sort of keep you from like letting that viciousness out. Or even think about your own family. You know, somewhere in your family, whether it's your parents or your grandparents, or it's an awkward uncle, there's anger somewhere, great grandparents. There's somewhere in your story of your family, someone whose anger, either toward their kids or either toward your, you know, maybe it was your grandparents toward your toward your your parents 
has had deep effects generationally. That whether they were the kind of people that were angry with their like fists, or whether they were the kind of person that were angry with their words, or whether they were even worse, the kind of person that was just angry in that manipulative, emotional, spiritual way, you know, there really is a way of hitting someone so hard that they'll never recover without ever raising your hand. And your families have felt that. Therefore, you have felt that. You know, anger is something that's still a huge, huge part of just our existence as human beings. This is one of the things I thought was so interesting if you've seen Noah. There's a conversation at the end of Noah, and this is not really a spoiler alert, but because I think you know the story of Noah, I would think. Um, but there's a conversation in the movie that I thought was fascinating where here you have, you know, they've come out of the ark. The earth is sort of, the flood has subsided, and they're about to sort of restart, you know, the human family on earth again. And, and if you've watched, you know, if you know the story, Ham is sort of is Noah's troubled child and, and has a lot of anger himself toward Noah and toward the way his life has gone. And right before Ham has decided that that brokenness of that relationship is beyond repair, and he decides, if you know the story, he decides that I'm going to kind of leave. I've got to leave and go somewhere else. I can't be with my father and my family anymore. There's a conversation he has, a really short conversation with Isla, Shem's wife, where he says something fascinating toward the end of the movie. And he simply says this. He says, maybe we will learn to be kind. And for me, as, I'm watch- as I was watching it last week, it was a moment for me. I'm like, it was a profound question. Because have, have we learned to be kind? You know, kindness is sort of the, the opposite of anger, if you think about it. Uh, showing someone not the hate and, and envy and, and viciousness, but so, showing someone kindness that they, that they don't deserve. And the answer to that question, if you know yourself and if you know where you live, has to be no. That we have not learned to be kind. That we still have all kinds of anger. But what's interesting is it would be too easy to kind of say, let's think about, okay, anger. Like this, the wrong sermon that you hear tonight would be, okay, anger is a problem, what do we do with it? But I want you to see kind of the way that the, the, that the gospel begins and, the, and Scripture begins to talk about anger is actually a little bit different. Is it's actually so, it's not so, the problem isn't so much even anger itself, even though we can, we've, we've felt some of the kind of explosive power of anger and we, and we felt that either we've done that to someone or we felt that from someone. But the problem, Scripture says, isn't so much that we get angry. The problem, God says, is why, the reasons why we get angry. Because there's actually a biblical category for, what, like, for anger being actually a good emotion. Scripture gives us a category that, that's, that the anger in and of itself isn't always a bad thing. That there is such a thing as being angry about the right things in the right way for the right reasons. And that our problem is that's not the kind of anger that we have. In other words, we're actually just saying it, right? Because here's what we're asking. Like, because you can't read Scripture and, and, and get around that God gets angry. But how does he get angry? He gets angry in the right way. He's slow. We just sing it. He's slow to anger. He's incredibly long-suffering. He's incredibly slow. And his anger, he gets anger, angry in the right way. It's not explosive anger. And he gets angry for the right reasons. It's not selfish anger. It's anger at seeing sin destroy his creation. It's anger at seeing sin destroy another human being. But that's our problem. Is we get selfishly angry. We get angry at the wrong things. We get angry for the wrong reasons. And we get angry in the wrong way. That's just our problem. Our problem isn't so much that we get angry. It's why we get angry. And what's fascinating is kind of think about 
that that is our problem. Here's a, a way to, that, that I think no one's put it better than, um, than Rebecca Pepper. You have it in your handout. Here's what she says. Think about this idea of righteous anger. In other words, I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says, what we're called to as Christians is what God, what God does. And it's not the way Keller says it. It's not no anger. It's not blow anger. It's slow anger. I, I love that because I love rhyming. It's not no anger. It's not, it's not blow anger. I'm not going to explode on you. But it's actually slow anger. Um, here's what Pippert says. Though. She, no one has said it better than her. Here's what she says. You can read along. She says this. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger, listen what she says. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. The way that I kept thinking about today is it's the difference for me between Taken and the Incredible Hulk. So if you think about the Incredible Hulk, you know, if you know that story at all, you know, what, how does Hulk get angry? Hulk gets angry, it's small or big, anything can set him off. And when something sets him off, you know, his anger is so powerful and destructive that anyone or anything in his path just gets just destroyed. It just gets obliterated, right? If you, if you were unfortunate enough to see either the TV series or the first Hulk, I'm sorry, but like the second one in Slash the Avengers, much, much better. But you know, I mean, that's sort of the way his anger works. But then think about Taken. Very, very different kind of anger. Still anger, but what is it about? It's anger for the right reasons. It's anger, here's Liam Neeson in the most, you know, incredible way, sort of getting righteously anger about these guys who are trying to destroy his daughter. In other words, it's an anger that seeks to protect and preserve life, not an anger that seeks to destroy and take life away. And our problem is we do way more Hulk kind of anger, whether it's explosive or implosive, way more selfishly oriented anger that destroys and kills life than we do godlike anger that is right in the right reasons for the right way for the right causes. Um, I love the way that Keller breaks it down. He says, typically the way that Augustine used to think about desires, because anger, like we said, can be a biblically good desire. It's a desire that God himself, it's an emotion that God himself feels. So it has to be in its essence, there's something that can be good about it. But what Augustine would say about us as humans is that our problem is not that we have these desires. Our problem is that we have what he called disordered desires. So think about love for a second. Your problem isn't that you have love or feel love. Your problem is that you love yourself and you love your idols more than you love God. And you love yourself more than you love others. It's a self-centered love that's your problem. It's a disordered love. Same thing applies with anger. Again, your problem isn't that you have anger, it's that you have, you have the, you, it's a disordered anger. And it's disordered in three ways, that Keller says, that are really helpful. He says this, three ways that it's disordered. Here's the first. It's disordered in its cause. Because here's the question. Why do you get more angry when a friend gossips about you than you get angry that the, that the fact that there are children in Russia right now as we speak that cannot get adopted because their government is corrupt and proud? Or why do you get more angry when a friend cancels plans, or when your car gets towed from Aspire, towed from you know, Olympia, or wherever, wrong, even wrongfully towed, why do you get more pissed about that than you do about a 12-year-old girl today that was sold into the sex trade in Cambodia? 
The, the cause of your anger is messed up. The cause of my anger is messed up. It's way more about me and my idols and my comforts and my pleasures and the things and the way that I want my life to go than it is about the injustice, real injustice, even down the street from me or even down the hall from you or even in, the other, you know, in a person's life who is helpless, in a person's life who can't do anything about it. So the first way is disordered in its cause. But then second, it's disordered in its proportion. In other words, we blow up and we, we get crazy angry at something way out of proportion to what the offense is. And this is actually interesting, you know, thinking about the Ten Commandments and Moses. This is why God is severe with Moses in the desert, because Moses explodes on Israel for not getting it, for not understanding who God is, for not being faithful, for not being thankful and grateful. And he explodes. Remember, he strikes the rock. He gets pissed and he just like he beats on a rock. And God is actually righteously angry because he says, Moses, who are you to get more angry with my people than I am? Who are you to think you're in my place where if I'm not going to explode in them in anger that you can? It's an anger. Sometimes it's disorder because it's out of proportion. And then lastly, and, and most sadly, and you, some, some of you, you felt that, especially in the parent-child relationship, sometimes it's disordered in its goal. Righteous, right anger, righteous anger seeks to destroy the foolishness in a child. Bad anger, sinful, selfish anger seeks to destroy the child. Yeah, this is where, as I'm like thinking about this and thinking about wrestling with this this week, this is where it cuts to the heart for me. Is this way, way easier for me to get pissed at my kids and, and, and discipline them in anger, not because I want to see them love God and, and be obedient and love Jesus and follow him, but because they're disturbing my comfort? You know, I'll never forget this one time, you know, in Statesboro where I just had lost it with, I'd lost it with my son. And I was one of those moments where I guess I'd calmed down and I was like doing that thing where I, I guess I was trying to like atone. You know, sometimes we do that thing where we, we lose our temper if you're a temper person and then we feel really bad about it. And we don't really know what to do. So maybe you like open the Bible after like, oh, I'm going to read some scripture now to make myself feel a little bit better. And somehow it was like one of those moments where the scripture I read just it's, it literally has changed. Like I think about it almost every day. It's one of those moments where I just open to James 1. And there's a part in James 1 where he says, The anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And it was like Jesus was saying to me, See me? You can lose your temper all you want with your kids, but don't ever think that that's going to help them in their relationship with me. Not if it's not right anger. Not if it's not more angry at the foolishness in them, which is calm, cool, and collected, still firm, still disciplining like God does, but not wild, fiery eyes, you know, pick someone up, throw them against the wall kind of anger that just loses it and actually destroys a little piece of their soul and destroys a little piece, you know, whether that's a word, whether that's an action. So what do you do with your anger? So if we sort of understand that we, we don't get angry for the right reasons in the right way, what do we do about it? And I think the gospel actually says, you know, so our culture would say two things. Go to Strom. Hit that treadmill. Get on those courts. Talk some trash. Throw some bows. Get on that sand volleyball court. Get, go spike some stuff. <laughs> I don't know what you do at volleyball. <laughs> I mean, do some crazy volleys and some spikes. Or, or close your eyes. Count to ten. Take a bubble bath, which is yes. Uh, or or go eat something incredible. That will we'll go get some Wendy's. I do I do all those things minus 
the sports stuff. Um, but the gospel says something very different. Uh, the gospel says three things. The first thing it says, three C's. Confess that you're angry. Be honest. Admit it. Now, the, here's, here's, what, here's how it works. For those of you who have explosive anger, here's what you do. You lose it with your girlfriend. And then you want, to, you want her to not tell on your secrets. And you want her to pretend like it didn't happen. And you just sort of move on. And no one really knows but her or your, him that you have that kind of a temper. And that's how families often work, too. You know, your mom or your dad explodes, maybe slaps you around, and you just want to pretend like it never happened. You don't ever talk about it. You don't ever get help about it. You don't ever, like, go to counseling about it, which you should, like, do tomorrow. That's, so don't do that. Confess it. Bring it out. You know, John Newton used to say, sin is like a mushroom that grows best in the dark. Anger is so much that way. You've got to admit it. You've got to own it. You've got to own that you are that person, that you did that, that you slapped that person around, that you said that. That you are passive-aggressive, so passive-aggressive. Own it. If it's implosive, it's harder. You've got to connect that maybe I'm depressed because I'm angry at God. Maybe I'm depressed because life has not gone the way that I wanted to go. Freshman year has not gone the way God promised me it would go. And you're pissed, but it's implosive. You're, you're bitter. A relationship didn't end the way you wanted it to or didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Either way, you've got to own it, you've got to confess it, both to Jesus, but also, James says, we've got to confess our sins to one another. It, 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 Bonhoeffer has got this great section in Life Together where he says, listen, don't be the person that only confesses his sin to Jesus. Because sometimes when we confess to one another, our sin, becomes, our sin against Jesus becomes way more real because we have to say it out loud. We have to say what we did. We have to own it. Confess it. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Check your anger. In the words of Ice Cube, chickity, check yourself before you wreck yourself because anger will wreck you. Like, it will. There's a sense in which anger, if, you, if it goes unexamined, if it goes unanalyzed, it really will begin to eat you out from the inside. And so what you have to do is you have to trace your anger. You've got to trace it and first say, okay, why am I angry? And typically you can trace your anger back to some sort of idol, which is why I share with, typically I know when I've lost it with my kids, I can typically trace it back to the idol of comfort. Typically, when, whether you get really, really depressed or bitter, or whether you get really, really mad and chew someone out, or, or hopefully you don't beat someone up, but you might, you've got to sort of say, whoa, put in slow motion, trace that anger back to where it's coming from. And typically, almost 99% of the time, it's because an idol is being disturbed. Something that you, something that you think you can't do life without is being threatened, or life is not giving you what you want, and an idol is not giving you what you think you have to have to live. You gotta check it. You gotta, you know, the way that I think about it is, it's easier not to check it. It's like when the check engine light comes into my car, and it's on like right now, and it's been on, I'm not, I'm not kidding, it's been on probably for, I, this is not exaggeration, it's probably been on for four or five years, honestly. I wish that wasn't true. Get to know me, you'll, it'll make so much sense just the way that I work. But, and I'm like, my car's fine, <laughs> but, but it's not fine. <laughs> But I think it's fine because nothing is happening, but I'm being a fool because it's going to be, it's much, much easier not to check it, but it's going to be much, much more painful for me in the long run because it could have been something very simple that I could have checked very early on and actually fixed for like $50 versus something that's going to be very painful, that's going to cost me a lot more money, it's going to be a lot more costly. You've got to, you've got to check it. But here's the last one. This is the one that gets a little more, gets a little harder, is you've got to take your anger to the cross. 
you've got to take your anger and see it in light of what is happening on the cross. And I think you're going to see that there are two incredibly surprising things when you begin to take your anger to the cross. And here's sort of the first one. Is that when you take your anger at the cross, you're going to realize that more than you thought, you're like Cain. And that all of the anger in your life, at the end of the day, ultimately, in some way or another, is about and against God. And maybe it's about a way that God has disappointed you. Or maybe it's about that you really do resent him saying, I am the king and I am the Lord and I have the final say in your life. Or maybe it's about that he's not giving you what you think you need and what you think you deserve. And there is an anger, like the anger of the older brother at the end of Luke 15, where he is pissed because he feels like God hasn't given him anything. And he realizes in that story, if he were to come to his senses, that God has given him everything. His father gives him everything that he could ever need or want. There's a a hymn that I love by Horatius Boner. And it's called, uh, It's I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall. And he's actually, the way he writes to him is he's envisioning himself... In sort of with the crowd as Jesus is being crucified. And he's asking himself the question in the hymn. He's asking himself, what would I have been like if I had been in that crowd? Would I have been someone sort of saying, what are y'all doing? Why are we crucifying this guy? What would I have been like? And here's how he writes it. He says this. He says, I see the crowd in Pilate's hall. I mark their wrathful mien. Their shouts of crucify a Paul with blasphemy between. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that den of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourges tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of that crowd who smote and mocked, I feel that I am one. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. And here's what he's saying. What would I have been like? What would I have been like when, if I had been there when God made himself vulnerable? And came so near to us that he became a man and he became so vulnerable that we could kill him. How, what did we do with him? Do do we listen to him, believe him, love him, follow him, give everything for him, submit ourselves wholeheartedly to him? And Horatius is saying, no, we killed him. That we took our anger out on him. That we were so angry with God that when we had the chance to get our hands on him, to taste and to sort of feel him, we were so angry at him, we killed him. We were so angry that he is God and we are not. We are so angry that he is right and we are wrong. We are so angry that he is the creator and we are the created. We are so angry that he is the one that has the final and ultimate say as the author and finisher of life that we, when we had the chance, we killed him. And Horatius is saying, that was me. Like, that's what I would have done. That's what's in my heart. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm just like Cain. There's something in me that all of my anger, whether it's taking, however it looks, that ultimately all of my anger is against God at the end of the day. And that's the first surprising thing. Maybe you don't think about anger that way, but all of your anger is ultimately against God in one way or another. But then what's even more surprising is what God, how God responds. Because at the cross, what's happening? There are a couple things happening. How does God respond first to our anger? Does he come in, guns blazing, like, I'm going to show you people what's up, I'm going to explode all over you? Does he withdraw and sort of say, like, you guys have screwed it, cold shoulder, I'm going to cold shoulder you. I'm going to give it silent treatment. That's not what he does. He draws near, and he opens his arm wide. He's, he opens his arms as wide as he can, 
And it's what Jesus prays right before they kill him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What did Jesus do with your anger? He absorbed it. He, he absorbed it into his love. But he didn't just absorb your anger, your sinful, selfish, petty, proud anger. That's not just what he did. He also did something more profound. Is he absorbed the, the Father's, he absorbed God's righteous anger at our sinfulness. He, he took the right anger. Because here's the deal. If anyone deserves to be angry, it's God. It's not God that sinned against us. It's us that sinned against God. It's not God that has withheld his love from us. It's us that have withheld our love from God. It's not God that has made a wreck of families and communities and cities and countries. It's we and our selfishness and our pettiness and in our pride and our foolishness that have made not only a wreck of ourselves, but have made a wreck of families and communities and cities and countries. If anyone deserves to be angry, it's God. And yet, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's absorbing not only your sinful anger, but he's absorbing God's righteous anger. And he's saying, I am doing this that you might be, that you might be set free. That you might know peace. That you might know not just forgiveness, but you might know mercy. That you might know grace. That you might know... Another way of saying it is Jesus is taking, he's taking the wrath. He's taking hell that you might know heaven. I love, if you've been around RUF, you've, you've certainly heard this before, but there's uh, one of my absolute favorite movies in the last you know, 20 years is a movie called The Iron Giant. I mean, the simple story is this, Iron Giant, there's a, it's set in the 60s, there's a, a little boy named Hogarth being raised by a single mom and living in a small town. He has no friends, has a pretty, you know, he's trying to find his way in life. He's, you know, he's in middle school, which is just an awkward time. And he's out, he's curious, he's out exploring one night, he's in the woods, and he hears this crazy sound, something crashing in this electrical plant and something being electrocuted, and he goes over out of curiosity to see what it is, and what he discovers as he turns off the electricity is this huge iron giant that's actually alive, and sort of, as you watch the story, he kind of comes out of space and just falls into Hogarth's community, and and Hogarth and this giant, as they sort of meet each other, become friends. And and the the whole story is kind of about them becoming friends, this iron giant and this little boy, and, uh, you know, finding, you know, you know he, meeting their, his family and meeting family friends and just, you know, being, you know, lo- growing in love for each other. But inevitably the town starts seeing this giant and sees it in the height of the Cold War against Russia and the U.S. And the town gets suspicious. There are these sightings. What is this thing? So the military, U.S. military gets involved. And certainly they're thinking this has got to be some sort of Soviet spy. This has got to be some kind of military thing. And so there's this one crazy angry general who has just decided that his mission is to hunt and kill and destroy this iron giant. So the way the movie goes is this general, he's, they've, they've, you know, he's interviewed everyone in town. He's found the giant. They're, they're chasing him through town. They, he's called in all the military power, all these tanks, all these helicopters, you know, all these planes. And he's brought, actually, this, this nuclear missile. And as they chase this giant, this whole military, military convoy, into the town, all the people have gathered around to see what's happening. And without thinking, this sort of crazy, angry general presses a button and fires this missile. This missile that, that the giant, and everyone kind of realizes as soon as it's fired, as it's, fly, you know, as it's, as it's climbing into, into the sky, they realize that as soon as it comes back and hits its target, the giant, it's not just going to destroy the giant, it's going to destroy everything. It's going to destroy everyone. And the giant realizes this, and in this beautiful moment, he, he looks at the people, and he looks at his friend, and then he flies off into the sky, and he flies off to the, really, the, the reaches of the atmosphere, and he takes this missile, and just before he pulls it on himself to destroy himself, he smiles. And then he, he takes the missile into himself, and he explodes into a thousand pieces, and the people are spared. And every time I watch that, I think, Jesus... 
That there's a sense when we see the cross, Jesus is taking not only our sinful, foolish anger that deserves to be judged, but he's taking the righteous wrath, the righteous anger of God that you and I might be spared. And he's taking it joyfully that you might, that you might be forgiven, that you might know mercy, that you might know grace. This is why Boner closed the sin like this. Close with this. He said this. He says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood." I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse away my sin. And not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. Let's pray. Lord, um, you know more than we know um, where our anger is and what it's doing, what's doing to us, what's doing to others. And Lord, only the peace that was made at the cross can ever begin to give us peace. A peace that you say transcends all understanding. A peace that comes only from you, Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that for myself, I pray that for us, that you would show us those places where anger has taken root, where bitterness has taken root. And that you would help us take it to the cross. That you would help us to to bring it into the light of the way that you and your love uh, absorb that anger and absorb even what it deserves that we might know your peace. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.